Hey folks, thanks for joining me for this episode of ATP, Ask the Pastor. Pastor Sullivan here at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Kerrville, Texas. Today's question. Hello Pastor, I was wondering if you could explain what the Oral Torah, Mishnah, Gemara, Talmud, Midrashim, and the Sages are, and if it would be good for Christians to study them. I've heard rabbis and pastors suggest that Christ was a Pharisee, and that the Gospels contain references to oral law and rabbinic thought processes, such as Acts 1 verse 12, and that we miss them because we aren't familiar with those texts. I've been enjoying John Lightfoot's commentary on the Gospels based on the Talmud, and I've heard that Martin Luther was probably influenced by the Rabbi Rashi through Nicholas of Lyra. What are your thoughts? All right, so first, what is all this stuff? Uh, the Jews believe that God gave the oral law to Moses on Mount Sinai along with the written law. And the oral law then passed down through word of mouth, obviously, until finally being written down in the Mishnah. The Gemara then is a commentary on the Mishnah. Now together, those two things, the Mishnah and the Gemara, that's what constitutes the Talmud. Although today it's customary uh, to associate the Gemara alone with the Talmud. It's also important to note that there are two different Talmuds, the Palestinian and the Babylonian Talmud. And again, generally today, if someone mentions the Talmud, uh, then they're referring to the Babylonian one. The Midrashim, they're simply rabbinic commentaries on the scriptures and expansions on the stories in scripture. Uh, the Talmud, it also contains the Halakha, uh, rules then which regulate conduct down to, well, really the minutest detail. So what does Jesus do with the oral law and the tradition of the elders and the gospels? Well, he actually teaches against them. So in Matthew 15 and in Mark chapter 7, Jesus doesn't require his disciples to wash according to the tradition of the elders. When questioned about it, uh, he condemns the tradition of the elders since the Jews had taught that tradition as if it were doctrine given from God. He even cites Isaiah 28, 13 in condemnation of their tradition. Jesus uh, tells them, uh, or rather, excuse me, he tells the man at the pool of Bethesda uh, to violate the tradition of the elders, when after healing him, he commands him to take up his mat, his bed, and walk. Uh, the Jews even told this man in John 5, verse 10, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now, when Luke describes Olivet as being a Sabbath day's journey, uh, he isn't assuming oral law or, or tradition of the elders and those, that those things are necessary for Christians to understand. Uh, he's simply stating that the base of the Mount of Olives was 2,000 cubits away from Jerusalem. Although, that doesn't really matter because in Luke 24:50 it states that Jesus led them as far out as Bethany, which would have been much further than the 2,000 cubits the rabbis allowed. Not that it mattered because it was a Thursday. Now, second century Christians followed Christ in his view of the oral law and the tradition of the elders. So Justin Martyr, in his work uh, entitled Dialogue with Trifo the Jew, chapter 38, he says, instead of leaving me, become more zealous and inquisitive listeners. At the same time, forsake the tradition of your teachers for they are convicted by the prophetic spirit of being incapable of understanding the truths spoken by God and of preferring their own opinions. Irenaeus of Lyon, writing about 25 to 30 years after Justin, 
writes in his uh, in book four of his work against heresies for the tradition of the elders themselves which they pretend to observe from the law was contrary to the law given by moses wherefore also isaiah declares thy dealers mix the wine with water showing that the elders were in the habit of mingling a watered tradition with the simple command of God. That is, they set up a spurious law, and one contrary to the true law. As also the Lord made plain when he said to them, Why do ye transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For not only by actual transgression did they set the law of God at naught, mingling wine with water, but they also set up their own law in opposition to it, which is termed even to the present day the Pharisaical. In this law they suppress certain things, add others, and interpret others, again, as they think proper, which their teachers use, each one in particular, and desiring to uphold these traditions, they are unwilling to be subject to the law of God, which prepares them for the coming of Christ. Thus far, Irenaeus. That's uh, against heresies, uh, book 4, chapter 12, the very beginning of that. So the oral law and the traditions of the elders according to Christ and the early church, have no value whatsoever for Christians, uh, just as it had no value for the Jews. Nor then is it necessary to read the New Testament through the lens of the oral law uh, or the traditions of the elders then. That, however, is what Nicholas of Lyra did. Uh, so this goes into the second part of your question asking about his influence on Luther. Nicholas, Nicholas of Lyra uh, he was a 13th century Franciscan monk, and he was wildly proficient in Hebrew, and he, in his interpretations, preferred the literal sense of Scripture. In his commentary on the Old Testament, he borrowed heavily from Rabbi Rashi and other rabbinic commentaries. Uh, and, and Lyra's work was popular all throughout the Middle Ages, even into Luther's day. Uh, and it's often been said that Nicholas of Lyra was a major influence upon Luther's understanding of Genesis and that Luther was dependent upon Lyra for his exegesis. Uh, now, Luther praises Lyra, uh, and he references him frequently throughout his Genesis lectures. In fact, uh, he said in volume 2 of the American edition, American edition, page 164, I have often stated what kind of theology uh, there was when I began to engage in this sort of study. It was continually stated that the letter kills, Therefore, I disliked Lyra above all other exegetes because he tried to ascertain the literal meaning with such care. But now, just because of this commendable quality, I prefer him to almost all other interpreters of Scripture. Now, Luther's explicit and his implicit references to Lyra all throughout his Genesis lectures, those have fortified the opinion that Lyra's exegesis was a major influence on Luther's reading of Genesis. However, Thomas Kalita has demonstrated that Lyra's influence on Luther's reading of Genesis was minimal. Kalita noted uh, 133 explicit references to Nicholas of Lyra in Luther's Genesis lectures, and 109 implicit references listed by the editors of the German and English editions of Luther's, editions, excuse me, of Luther's works. Uh, what this author did was he divided Luther's use of Lyra into four categories use of the Hebrew language, rabbinic interpretation, scholastic theology, and the literal interpretation of the text. And he found that, quote, in only 5% of the words studied did Luther make reference to Lyra, end quote. So clearly Luther didn't need Lyra's, ho uh, Lyra's help uh, with the Hebrew language. He goes on to say, in the area of Jewish 
exegesis uh, may be judged as more negative than positive, since Luther disagrees with the rabbinic interpretations which he received through Lyra three times more frequently as he agrees. Uh, so much of the time when Luther disagrees with the rabbinical reading of the text, it's because they're reading things into the text that's just not there. So for instance, the rabbis thought that Abraham's second wife, Keturah, was really Hagar. Again, no textual evidence. Uh, Lyra notes that uh, there's a rabbinical opinion that Jacob arrived in Mesopotamia impoverished because he had been pursued uh, by Eliphaz, uh, Esau's oldest son. Now, Luther calls these sorts of things Jewish prattle um, because it's not what is written in the text. And Kalita found uh, that Luther disagreed with Lyra over the interpretation of texts about as often as he agreed. Luther told his students, uh, of such pratings the rabbis are capable once they have rejected the light of the New Testament. But they cause us double labor, for we are compelled to safeguard the text and cleanse it from such distortions. And we must correct their very absurd comments. However, I am accustomed to quote them occasionally to avoid the impression that we're treating them with haughty contempt and that we have either ignored or slighted their writings. We read and understand them, but we read them with critical judgment, and we do not permit them to obscure Christ or to distort the word of God. That's from Luther's Works, Volume 1, page 303. If this is the case, then why did Luther mention Lyra so often in his Genesis lectures? Well, simply because Lyra was uh, a basic text that theological students had to be familiar with, just like they had to be familiar with Peter Lombard's sentences. Based on Thomas Kalita's findings, it's safe to say that Luther's dependence upon Lyra has been greatly exaggerated. There's no reason to think that Luther's reading of Genesis uh, was greatly affected by rabbinical traditions in the Talmud or the Midrashim. You know, he interacted with those traditions and interpretations through Lyra, but he disagreed with those rabbinic interpretations the majority of the time. And that's because Luther prioritized the literal meaning of the text and he disregarded the rabbinic reading, their, their exeg or rather their eisegesis, their reading things into the text. In his interpretation of scripture, even, in, even as it is in his interpretation uh, in the lectures on Genesis, he's not influenced by the rabbis or even Nicholas of Lyra as much as traditionally thought. The chief influence of Luther in his exegesis is the plain sense of God's word and God's word alone. Thanks for the question. We'll catch you next time on ATP.